are going to be in Genesis chapter 3 to start with today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. The question of the day is, who is Jesus? We celebrate Jesus at Christmas. We celebrate Jesus at Easter. We should be celebrating Jesus every other Sunday of the year and every other day of the week. Uh, but in particular, today, Easter Sunday, the, the day that Jesus rose from the grave, I want to ask the question, who is Jesus? Why are we making such a big deal out of Jesus? And I want to kind of take you on a survey through Scripture, just hit some highlights to, to answer the question, who is Jesus? And I want to check. I'm going to go ahead and switch screens so I can use my computer this morning. So if you're in Genesis chapter 3, let's look at verse 15. Genesis 3.15. We're going back all the way to the fall. Uh, the sin has been committed. It has been discovered. The encounter with God is taking place. The questions have been asked and answered. And in, in verse 14, God begins laying out the curses. In verse 15, we have the curse given to the snake. And this is what it says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now we're asking the question, who is Jesus? I want to take you all the way back to the Garden of Eden and I want to let you know that we see Jesus in this verse. So we start off with a, a curse being given to the actual serpent and the actual woman. And it says, I'll put enmity, I'll put strife, I'll put fear, I'll put anxiety between, between you and the snake and between your offspring and hers. So from that time on, all humanity has had a love-hate relationship with the snake. Most of us fully hating the snake, a few pretending to love the snake, even though under other circumstances and contexts they still fear the snake. You know, I don't get excited about a snake running through the grass here in, in Cath Lambert when I mow the lawn or anything like that. Uh, but back home I would because back home we have rattlesnakes. So the, the kind of snake makes a difference. And it just says, hey, there's going to be issues. There's going to be issues between uh, the woman and the snake and the woman's offspring and the offspring of the snake. And that's pretty easy to understand. But then this phrase, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Notice the singular pronouns here, he. If we were talking about the offspring, it would be they will crush your head and you will strike their heel. That's not what it says. It says he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So now we're moving into the prophetic. We're moving into one of Eve's offspring and the one that the snake represents. So the, the conversation turned and, and just very quickly move from the, uh, the human side to the spiritual side. So in your notes, I have that phrase written there with some parentheses. Let's fill in those blanks. He is Adam's offspring. He is one of Adam's offspring. Specifically, the he in this verse is Jesus. So Jesus will crush your, and, and that's Satan. So Jesus will crush Satan's head, and you, Satan, will strike his Jesus heal. Now, the difference between the heel and the head, the heel can take several hits and, and not really have any long-lasting damage. Uh, the head, you don't want to get struck in the head. 
And you know, when we uh, see boxers and stuff fight, they don't try to hit each other in the heel, they, they go for the head and the body. And, and so there's that illustration there. And I, I want to say, A, in your notes, Satan's strike against Jesus' heel is constant. It's not a strike that's coming, it's a constant barrage of strikes against Jesus. So what are we talking about? Well, think to um, way back with when Moses was born. And, and the Pharaoh tried to kill all the babies in, in Egypt that belonged to the Hebrews. That was God's attempt to erase the Hebrew nation, or Satan's attempt. It was Satan's attempt to erase the Hebrew nation. He, his thought was, if I, can, if I can kill all the boys, then eventually this nation will, will wear out, and I can stop the process. It wasn't a great plan, but it was a plan, and of course it failed. Uh, think forward to a similar situation with Herod in Bethlehem. Herod killed all the babies in Bethlehem two years old and younger because he wanted to wipe out the king that was born. So he figured out an age bracket and he tried to kill them all. Well, he failed at killing them all. He failed at killing Jesus for sure. And so Satan lost again, but he was striking against the heel. There were many famines in Canaan causing strife and and issues for the Israelites. There was Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness. Satan's goal for the temptation was to discredit Jesus. If he could get Jesus to sin, then he would no longer be the worthy sacrifice. He would no longer be worthy of being called the Son of God. He would actually, everything would fall apart. So he tempted him in the wilderness for 40 days, and we have a record of some of that. That was a strike against the heel. There was religious tax attacks. The whole time Jesus walked on the earth, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they all attacked Jesus. They'd follow him around and they'd try to find ways to accuse him. They would gather in small groups and, and try to come up with questions he couldn't answer. And they attacked him continuously. They tried to stone him on one occasion. They tried to push him off a cliff on another occasion. That was a, a strike against the heel of, of Jesus. Notice the resurrection itself is not in here because Satan, knowing God and knowing things and knowing Scripture, he would have recognized that, that the crucifixion was required. And I, I think some of the things leading up to the crucifixion were Satan's attempts to kill Jesus before he could be put on the cross, to have him stoned, to have the mob get him, things like that. He, that he might die when he was being scourged and, and being beaten, and, but it didn't work. It was an a, a attack against the heel. It was a strike against the heel. Then there's the resurrection cover-up. When Jesus did raise from the dead, Satan tried to cover it up. If I can hide the fact that he rose from the dead, that'll keep people from believing. So strike after strike after strike after strike, but all to the heel of Jesus. But B, Jesus' crushing of Satan's head was also continual, but now it's partially complete. He overcame every attack. Every attack mentioned, every attack I didn't mention, he overcame every one of them. But on Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead. We're going to talk about what that means in a few minutes, but rising from the dead was one of the head-crushing blows that Jesus delivered. And it's partially complete. It's not fully complete because Satan is not, is not in the lake of fire right now. The final blow will be when Satan is cast in the lake of fire prepared for him and his angels. He's still causing havoc. He's still striking against the heel of Jesus. 
but Jesus is putting him down, and one day the crushing will be complete. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the unnamed he in Genesis 3.15. So we're going all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to early, early after creation. And we see Jesus being mentioned. Why didn't God use his name? Well, he hadn't been given the name yet. He hadn't been born on this earth, so the name hadn't been given. But Jesus is mentioned in, in Genesis 3.15. Let's look at number two. Jesus is the door in the illustration of the ark. You can read that later. It's Genesis 6 through 8. But remember the ark. The ark was, was massive. It held two of every creature, some of, of seven of others, every kind. Everything needed to, to replenish the earth after the flood. This is, this is all going on. This is all, is, is all happening. And God provided an escape. He provided a salvation. The ark was the means by which eight people would be delivered. They would be saved. So the ark was a picture of the gospel, God's provision for salvation. If you got on the ark, you were saved. If you were outside the ark, you were not saved. There was no way you could tread water for that long. There's no, there was no escape. You were either in the ark or outside the ark. The door of the ark is a picture of Jesus. If the ark is the gospel and the door is Jesus, what do we need to realize? Well, there was only one way into the ark. There wasn't a back door. There wasn't a, a hole somewhere. There was one way in. It was the door. And, and God said, go through the door. God closed the door behind them. Once the door was closed, it was over. So the ark is the gospel. Jesus is the door. In your notes, there's only, there is only one way. And it is the only way. There was only one way on the ark. There's only one way to having a right relationship with God. Number two, the opportunity to enter only lasts so long. The door was eventually closed to the ark. I'm sure there were people that wanted in, but when the door was closed, the door was closed and no one else got on. One day the door of the gospel will be closed. One day there will be no more time. We will run out of time. And we don't want to be on the wrong side of, of that date. There's only one way. The door is only open for long, so long. And number three, when the purpose is complete, new life will be the result. Do you realize that when Noah and his sons got off the ark, everything was new. Every plant was brand new. Every land that they saw was uninhabited and therefore brand new and open for settlement. Every animal that was born was, was new. The, the geography was new. The climate was new. The opportunities were new. It was all new. It was new life. After, after 150 days of death and, and the flood and destruction, now, now it was life, and it was new life. Well, when we are on the other side of the gospel, when we are in the presence of God, it'll be all new life. It'll be the presence of God. It'll be no more tears, no more sadness. We'll have joy and peace, and we have everything to look forward to. No more death, no more sorrow. So the ark is a picture of the gospel, and the door of the ark is a picture of Jesus. So he's the unnamed he in Genesis 3.15. He's the door in the illustration of the ark. Number three, he's the Messiah prophesied about in Psalm 22. Now I put that verse in the notes here, and, and I want you to recognize that there are some passages from the Old Testament that the Jews 
recognized were messianic passages, messianic prophecies. In other words, they spoke about the future Messiah. And the Jewish people identified these scriptures and they used them as the context to, to identify or look for who the Messiah would be. Some of them were very clear and, and they understood them. Some were a little more obscure and I think some they really didn't even know what meant. This particular passage, this verse, if you will, or these two, two verses, are in the middle of a long passage of messianic prophecy and there's these two phrases. One of which I'm, I'm pretty certain they didn't know what meant. Now, David meant something when he wrote them. We're not sure what David meant in the present context, but we can look back and we see the future context. I say that he probably didn't know what he meant because crucifixion had not been invented yet. There was no method of execution that involved the piercing of hands and feet, yet it says, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me, they pierce my hands and my feet, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now this is just one of many. There's over 300 passages that prophesy about Jesus as the Messiah, about details of his life, details of his death. This one happens to be one of my favorites because the Holy Spirit revealed to David the words, they pierced my hands and my feet, and I doubt David even realized he was prophesying something so specific about the Messiah. But Jesus is the unnamed he in Genesis 3. He's the door in the illustration of the ark. He's the Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament. And number four, he's the humble king born of a virgin. And I want to read this passage to you, but I want to read it in the New Living Translation, and it's on the screen. It says, though he was God, speaking of Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He's the humble king born of a virgin. This passage reflects back on how humble he was and what he did. Think of it like this. Uh, Jesus, being God, had all the privileges, all the knowledge, all the freedom. He had no restraints. He had no boundaries. And then to place himself into the infant body of a human being, 100% relying on other human beings to care for him and keep him safe, that's, that's a change of station. He, he voluntarily gave up these freedoms. He also voluntarily gave up the use of some of his divine characteristics, his, his, his omniscience, his omnipresence. He, he used some of these things from time to time under the direction of the Holy Spirit. There were even things that, according to the plan, he didn't know, like he said he didn't know when the second coming would be. His clothes were divided. He, his gar uh, they cast lots for his garments. This is after his crucifixion. So he started off as, as a baby, fully dependent on other human beings. He lived a sinless life. He was tempted in the wilderness. He was challenged by the religious leaders. He was lied about in a trial. He was put on the cross. Man thinking they were putting an end to him, but God actually fulfilling prophecy. 
And he did this voluntarily. He allowed himself. Don't ever miss that fact. He allowed himself to be beaten. He allowed himself to be scourged. He allowed the crown of thorns to go on his head. He allowed them to nail him on a cross. He did this because that's what he came for. When he was born in Bethlehem as a baby, the purpose of being born was so that he could live this life and at the end of this life be placed on the cross. It was the total plan. It was always the plan. He was the Messiah. So just fill in some blanks there. Humble because as God, he took on a body and lived a human life so that he could die as a sacrifice for sin and grow Sacrifice for sin in which he committed none. He had to grow. He had to learn. When he was injured, he had to heal. There were times when he was hungry. His father died early in his life. He suffered many things as a human. He, he grew up as a human. But he did so for us so he could die on the cross. So he's the unnamed he in Genesis. He's the door of salvation in, in the illustration of the ark. He's the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. He's a humble king born of a virgin. Number five, he's the self-proclaimed way, truth, and life as found in John 14, 6. You'll have to change that in your notes, a little typo there. It's actually John 14, 6. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus said this, and everyone understood exactly what he was saying. Okay, he, he wasn't just saying, hey, I'm, I'm a way or I'm a truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A, when he said, I am the way, he meant I am the way to heaven. I am the way to where God is. I am the way to eternal life. The conversation was Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to be gone, but I'm going to come back. And where I go, you're going to go with me. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. Jesus says, Thomas, slow down. I am the way. I am how you're going to get there. All you need to do is follow me. I will get you where you need to go. I am the way to heaven. I'm the way to where the Father is. When he said, I am the truth, he was saying, I am the truth to be found in Judaism. See, everything about Jesus was in the Old Testament. Every prophesy about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled was found in the Old Testament. Jesus could be preached from the Old Testament, and he says, I'm the truth. I'm the truth you've been seeking. I am the fulfillment of all the prophecy. When he said, I am the life, he meant I am the life that you are seeking. I am the life you desire. I am peace. I am joy. I am fulfillment. I am purpose. I am the way to eternal life. I am the way to completeness. I will fill the hole inside of you that you've tried to fill with other things. I am the way to God. I am the truth found in Scripture. And I am the life that you're seeking. He proclaimed this to his apostles. Number six, I am the lamb. Or who is Jesus? Jesus is the lamb looking as if he had been slain. And I want to read this to you. It's Revelation chapter 5. I actually want to read the whole passage. You'll hear some of the statements in here that you saw in the video where we started. But this is such a great passage. I want to read the whole passage to you. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now the setting is the throne room of God. It's the throne room of God. It's the beginning of the tribulation period. It's, it's the start of the end. So this is right after the letter 
to the to the churches. We've we've seen the throne room of God. This is now action taking place to kickstart what we read about in Revelation. Okay, and it says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, we praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is a scene towards the end of this earthly era, before the tribulation begins. And I want you to notice, I hope you heard, he saw a lamb standing in the center of the throne. God did not get off the throne so the Lamb could stand there. The Lamb was God. They co-occupied the throne, the Father and the Son. The Father who sent Jesus to be the Lamb, and Jesus who was the Lamb. And He entered the room as the Lamb that was slain, because Him being slain was the victory. It's what made Him worthy. He was worthy to open the scroll. He was worthy to claim what belonged to God, to administer justice, to make one last appeal to mankind through the tribulation period because he was the lamb that was slain. He was the means by which salvation was being offered. He didn't show up in his royal garments. He didn't show up with pomp and circumstance. He said he was the lamb as if he was slain probably had the marks of the nails in his hands and feet, the mark of the spear in his side. Who knows? But he was the lamb looking as if he was slain. So we've, we've passed Easter. Now we're looking back in Scripture. 
And this is the day we should look forward to because this is the day when the end is very near and the final crushing of Satan's head is, is so much closer. Number seven, he's the risen Lord as proclaimed by angels, witnessed by the women, and verified by Peter in Luke 12, uh, 24, 1 through 12. I'll let you read that passage. It's a fairly familiar passage, but the women showed up. And the angel proclaimed, who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. Peter came to check and see if the tomb was really empty, thinking maybe they went to the wrong tomb, or maybe they were delusional, and he found an empty tomb. John followed behind. He found an empty tomb. In, in the discovery of the empty tomb, all questions were answered. The resurrection was real. All of a sudden, those very strange and odd things Jesus said about, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again, were no longer a metaphor and no longer a parable. They were reality. They were recognized as prophecy fulfilled. So in your notes, Jesus' resurrection verified his own prophecies. Not very many people walked around earth saying, hey, I'm going to die in just a little while. I'm actually going to be killed after I'm arrested. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. But guess what? In three days, I'm going to rise again. Not only prophesied his rising from the dead, but prophesied the timing of his rising. There wasn't anybody walking around doing this. Now, Jesus had raised Lazarus and and others had been raised from the dead, but it was always at the command of someone else. Now, all of a sudden, it's up to Jesus to raise himself from the dead. And his resurrection verified that his prophecies were true. And, and, and really completed the process of belief for his apostles. B, his resurrection verified his own claim to be God. He had claimed to be God many times. The Jews responded by wanting to kill him. The Jews responded by wanting to uh, put him on trial and, and accuse him of blasphemy, which is what they actually did. And he claimed to be God, and when he rose himself from the dead, that claim was verified. There's no more doubt. The apostles had no more doubt. The women had no more doubt. Disciples who were following Jesus had no more doubt. People that had rejected Jesus now had questions. This Jesus that we said wasn't God just raised from the dead like he had prophesied. Maybe he is God. We need to investigate this. And those are probably the people that became believers at Pentecost and some other events. See, his resurrection is proof that God is a God of resurrection. See, the whole deal with Jesus' resurrection is that that opens the door for our resurrection. We will one day rise from the dead. Whether we're buried, cremated, whether we've rotted, no matter what happens to us, no matter how we die, no matter how old or how young we are, we will rise from the dead one day, and those who belong to Christ will rise to eternal life, and those who don't belong to Christ will rise to eternal death. There is a heaven waiting for some, and there is a hell waiting for others. Those who heaven is waiting for have been rescued from hell by Jesus, who rose from the dead on Easter morning. So, the resurrection is proof that God is the God of the resurrection. If he can raise himself, he certainly has enough power to raise us. That's the message of the resurrection. D, Jesus' resurrection seals the first, last, and final payments made against the debt of sin accumulated by all those who will accept him as Lord and Savior. He didn't make a down payment. He made a full payment. He didn't set up an installment plan or a layaway plan. 
He paid the price in full. He took the full penalty of our sins upon himself to the very point where God had to turn, God the Father to turn and look away because he couldn't look at sin. Paid the price so that anyone who accepts the gift of salvation can be saved. Anyone, anywhere, uh, of any financial means, any race, any class, any amount of knowledge, paid the price so that anyone could be saved. And that's what the resurrection is all about. It's actually the focal point of our entire faith system. Number eight, who is Jesus? Well, he is the self-proclaimed way, truth, and life. The way to find God. He is the lamb looking as if he had been slain, the only one worthy to open the scroll. He is the risen Lord, proving who he is and what he's capable of. And number eight, he's the one and only means by which you can and must be saved. He's the only means by which you can and must be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, let's break that down a little bit. I, I highlighted declare and believe. Those are the, the things we have to do. But what about the phrase, Jesus is Lord? That's a loaded phrase. It's not just that I say, you know, the magic words, Jesus is Lord, and I'm saved. It, it's a belief. It's a declaration of my faith. So when I say Jesus is Lord, what am I saying? I'm saying he's God. I'm saying he's God because he resurrected himself, proving he was God. I'm saying that he took on human form, which means I do believe he was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a, lived a life. Matter of fact, he lived a sinless life. I believe that he was born as a human, lived a sinless life, and he died voluntarily for my sin. After dying voluntarily, providing the necessary sacrifice for my sin, he then rose from the dead, proving power over life and death and the resurrection. And he reassumed his position and authority in heaven, standing on the throne with God, the Lamb as if he was slain. And not only has he reassumed his position and authority in heaven, he is now our Savior. Savior. The phrase, God raised him from the dead, I, as I said before, that's a central belief in our salvation story. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then he's a lousy prophet, he's a liar. He's not worth our time. If he couldn't raise himself from the dead, he wasn't much of a god and certainly doesn't have the power to raise any of us. It's the central point. We believe that, that God raised him from the dead, that actually he himself as God raised himself from the dead. And then we'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the inevitable penalty of sin. If a lifeguard saves me from drowning... He has saved me from the inevitable death of, of being underwater too long. If a fireman saves me from a fire, he's saving me from the inevitable death of burning up in a, a home consumed by fire. Well, Jesus will save me from the inevitable death of hell, which is the penalty for sin. What does he save me to? He saves me to redemption and eternal life. If I've been redeemed, the price has been paid. I've been made new. I've been made free. I've, I've been given a, a clean slate. So I stand before God as sinless and holy. And then he can look at me and welcome me in. So I, I'm saved through redemption and eternal life. 
So when I resurrect, I move into eternal life, into heaven with God to, to gain the reward. Romans 6.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can look at those verses. It's pretty clear. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, God didn't throw out words that he didn't, knew, he didn't know what meant. He didn't accidentally say everyone when what he really meant was some. He didn't mean that a few, or he didn't mean that those who measure up to a certain standard, or those who belong to a certain group, or live in a certain area, or belong to certain families, or have this much money. He, he didn't mistakenly say everyone, he intentionally said everyone. Everyone who calls. Not everyone will call. So there will be many who will say, I don't want it, I don't need it, maybe later. Many will never make the call, and they will never actually belong to God. They will literally say, hey, I'm going to take this, take this sin thing on my own, I'm going to run with it, and I'll deal with it. And God says, okay, if that's what you want, that's what I'll let you do. And then when it comes time to deal with it, they stand before the judge, and the judge declares them guilty, and as guilty sinners, they go to hell. But it says, everyone who calls, when I call on the name of the Lord, I'm calling out to him. I'm saying, hey, Jesus, I believe. I believe you are Lord, and I believe all the things attached to that. I believe you're the Savior. I believe God raised you from the dead. I believe that you're offering me the gift of salvation, and I need it because I'm a sinner. I know that my sin requires death. But you paid the price for me. So I call out and I ask for forgiveness and I accept the gift of salvation. And it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord not might be saved, but will be saved. Now I just want to take a couple of minutes and I want to ask the question, has God prepared you today to hear this message? Maybe he prepared you today to hear this message because you need to share it with someone else. And maybe your heart is saying, "That's those are the words I need. That answers some of the questions my friend has. That's a way to approach. That's a way to have a conversation. That's a way to reach out to somebody. If that's true, that's great. And you need to have that conversation. But maybe you're sitting here today and you said, you know, I actually thought I was pretty good with God. I actually thought that in the end I was good enough. That I wasn't super bad. Not super good, but not super bad, and not super bad should be good enough, but I'm probably going to make it. And maybe a phrase or two have indicated that that's not the way it works. That Jesus actually requires that you go through him, not yourself. That it's his work on the cross, not your work as a human being. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you've just thought because of the church you belong to, or the family you came from, or the service projects you've been a part of, or the, even the country you grew up in. Maybe you thought somehow you just got in on your own merit or on the merit of others. Like, I'm a Christian. I'm American, right? Or I'm a Christian. I grew up Baptist. I'm a Christian. I was baptized as a child. I'm a Christian. Let me tell you, my grandma, she was the best Christian ever. So I'm a Christian. None of those things count. They don't work. You will go before God and he'll say, why should I let you into my kingdom? Oh, Grandma. Remember Grandma? Yeah, that's her house right over there. 
she's got a big one. But why should I let you in? Grandma, sorry, I never knew you. There's only one way in. There was only one door to the ark. There's only one gate that gets you into heaven. It's Jesus. And he'll say, depart. I don't know who you are. I went to a great church my entire childhood. It was on an island. It was awesome. I had great friends. We had great potlucks. Pastors were okay, but we did well despite that. It was incredible. I went to this church, so I know I'm a Christian. Well, what church was that? Oh, it was Heritage Bible Church. Yeah, I remember that one. That was a good one. Oh, yeah, they did do some great stuff. Pastor was better than you thought. He used to say, why should I let you in? Because I went to Heritage Bible Church. And they say, well, that, that was good, but you didn't listen very well. Because you missed the point. The point was not to get your name on the roll of the church. The point was to get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. So that you can get into my kingdom. So, sorry, depart. I never knew you. So when you stand before God in heaven, he says, why should I let you in? The answer is because I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. And I accepted that gift and I made Jesus Christ Lord of my life. And I didn't do great, but I did my best to live for him. And God will say, well, good thing it's not dependent on you because what you thought was good really wasn't that good, but it was your best. Good thing that's not the key. The key is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you accepted the gift of salvation. So come on in. Uh, here's your address. Go find your house. And you have a reward in heaven. And he doesn't say, depart from me. I never knew you. So maybe you fit one of those categories. Maybe all of a sudden you're not so sure. Maybe you never were sure. Maybe you never really thought about it. Have you been putting your faith in the wrong thing? Well, I want to offer you a prayer this morning. And the words aren't magic. My words are not better than your words, but I'm going to give you some words. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer that says these things. And if you want to give your life to Christ, receive forgiveness of your sins, proclaim Him as Lord of your life and your Savior, then you can say the prayer. Don't say it to me. I have no power. I have no authority. You say it to God, who hears every prayer. You can say it out loud. You can say it quietly. It doesn't matter. He hears your thoughts. He hears the sincerity of your heart. And you can pray this prayer to God. And I just want to give you this opportunity. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say a line. I'll give you time to review the line. Think about it. And if you agree, then you pray it to God. And I'll lead you through a salvation prayer. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their head and close their eyes so we're not looking around. Nobody feels like they're on the spot. By all means, do not pray this prayer for your neighbor, for your friend, for a family member. It's, it's for yourself. Here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve to go to hell. But I also know about Jesus. I know that he died to forgive my sins. The Bible says that everyone who calls will be saved. And I'm calling right now. As Lord, 
Please forgive my sins. Help me to serve you from this day forward. I believe Jesus rose from the dead and is God. I declare this. Thank you for forgiving my sins and welcoming me to your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, the next step is to tell somebody. Tell someone what you've done. Let them know where your heart is. I'm actually just going to end the service now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray a prayer for all of us. And, and I send you off to enjoy your day. And there's some snacks over there. You can mingle a little bit. Maybe have a chance to greet some of the people coming to second service. But let's just pray. Father God, thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you so much for raising from the dead to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt who you are and what you're capable of. Thank you for all of Scripture, where we have Genesis pointing forwards to you, where we have the Psalms pointing to you, where we have the Gospels telling your story, and we have the Epistles reflecting back on that, and we have Revelation showing us what the future holds. And now the future is dependent on the Lamb that was slain. Thank you for... for for scripture that reveals these things. Thank you for being a God that, that is among us. The Holy Spirit can live within us. Thank you for all you've done for us. And, and even for allowing us once a year to celebrate the resurrection so we don't take it for granted. Father, if there's anyone who's still questioning their salvation or wondering how to be saved or if they can be saved, speak to their heart. Cause them to seek after you and then and then respond by filling in those blanks and giving those answers. Provide them a person to talk to. Help us to enjoy our day with family and friends. And, and may you be glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.